You join us on our perch at the far end of the bar. He's Ben. He's Richard. And just before you joined us, we were talking about cricket. The sound of willow on leather, or is it yes. the other way around? No, the leather on willow, willow on leather. Le- yeah. e- either way, it depends whether you're batting or bowling. Mm, true. And you love your cricket, and I love me cricket. I, yeah. I was brought up loving cricket. And we speak to you on the day that Ben Stokes hit five sixes and a four in one over. Indeed, he's a great cricketer. Yeah, uh, He's an entertainer, and he loves playing the game. Um, and he can play it all year round now, because there's no such thing as a cricket season, is there? No, it's Not just really. cricket. Well, I say, I say that, but if you, if you play cricket at our level, <laughs> uh, and we're talking here village cricket thirds wow that's generous (laughs) then um you only play in a season between kind of april and end of august just nudging into the beginning of september one of the great institutions around cricket is test match special Mm. cricket on the radio which does baffle some people because there are people and i'm sure there can't be many, but there are some people who don't understand how cricket works. Yeah, well, an alarmingly large amount of people, if you ask me. It's not difficult. This is because it's on the radio. There is nothing to do with the radio that would lend itself to um, helping the cause of cricket, really. Because it's a difficult game to understand at the best of times. Yeah. And if it's just left to people listening to it on the radio, they would be totally baffled. However, I've been a fan of cricket on the radio since I was a kid. Grew up at the end of the John Arlott days. Went through the Brian Johnson era. Stayed for Jonathan Agnew and the present crew of men and women who do a brilliant job. Mm. And um, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever told you this. I was at a Lord's Test as a guest of Charles Collingwood the Archers actor who plays Brian Aldridge. Right. No, you've never told me this. Oh, I've I've never told you this. Oh, this is a wonderful story. Charles Charles is a wonderful, wonderful actor, and he's he's actually been in The Archers longer than The Archers has been on the radio. He's been in for well over 300 years. (laughs) He's a a wonderful man, is Charles. He tells a great story. He's a very funny man. And we were working together on some telly shows, and we used to talk endlessly, of course, about the Great Summer Game. And because of his position in the Archers, which makes him something of a national treasure, and because of his love of cricket, the good burgers at TMS have interviewed him several times. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was his guest at Lords, he'd he definitely had an in with the TMS crowd. Okay. And what I didn't know as I trundled off to Lord's on that glorious summer's day, was that he had a surprise in store for me. Ah. So come lunchtime, he, he had the cool box and everything, he cracked open the pims, and we had a pims, and we had a nice little sandwich, and, and all the rest of it, with the crust cut off, and then he said, follow me. And off we went to the main door of the Lord's Pavilion. Wow. Like Hallowed ground. Classic old... Glorious building there, the um, fabulous one end of the strip. Um, he'd arranged for us to pop in on the TMS team. Goodness. In those days, before the giant media centre was built, the TMS commentary box was on top of the pavilion. Mm. So you had to go all the way up to the top. So we rocked up at the main door, 
and instantly a giant grey-haired man in a blazer and MCC tie blocked our passage. <laughs> no, I bet. He saw you coming and he was like, I don't think so. <laughs> he said, where are you going? And Charles explained, I'm Charles Collingwood, I'm in The Archers. And he said, and he's a television producer and he's working with me and we're off to a pre-arranged meet with the TMS team. Uh-huh. I'm supposed to believe that, am I? <laughs> anyway, Charles Sweet talked him around. It's and... funny how so many of those uh, type of security straight policemen have the same voice, isn't it? Oh, they do. But... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What you can be ready up for. <laughs> <laughs> Clear off. Uh, the giant doorman listened to all of this. And um, with a deal of suspicion, as you can imagine, and after several minutes of, of pleading, he deigned to let us pass. Mm. But as we took a step forward, his arms shot out in front of me, and he looked at Charles and he said, You won't let him run around, will you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing this is a few years ago. I was 37 at the time. Yeah. So you look more like someone who might run around in those days, I'm guessing. <laughs> well, the idea that, I, I mean, you know, strapping fella, in the prime, 37, you won't let him run around, will you? <laughs> I've never really understood how people find cricket so difficult to comprehend. I mean, there's that classic old... Uh, the tea towel. Really a poem, the tea towel. And it, it explains it perfectly. Yes. You have two sides... One out in the field and one in. Each man that's in the side that's in goes out. And when he's out, he comes in, and the next man goes in until he's out. When they're all out, the side that's out comes in, and the side that's been in goes out and tries to get those coming in out. Sometimes you get men still in and not out. When a man goes out to go in, the men who are out try to get him out, and when he is out, he goes in, and the next man in goes out and goes in. There are two men called umpires who stay out all the time, and they decide when the men who are in are out. When both sides have been in, and all the men have, out, have been out, and both sides have been out twice after all the men have been in, including those who are not out, that is the end of the game. How's that? <laughs> What's the problem? How you is that so hard to understand? I, I don't know who come at, came up with that, but it is a very po it's a popular poem, and it's a popular mm. uh, tea towel as well, and it hangs in many a, a, a cricket establishment. Absolutely. I don't know. Is that attributed to anyone at all? Um, I'm not sure. I've never really been able to discover, but... Um... Because as a writer, you know, I'm always keen to give credit because someone wrote that. Mm. And they deserve, absolutely they deserve credit, but... Yeah, never been able to establish who that was. If anybody is able to tell us, we'd be very keen to hear from you. Email us at thefarendofthebar at gmail.com. Do you know what I'm going to do one day, incidentally? I'm going to say email us. Richard will give you the email address, and then there'll be an awkward yes, silence. Like I used to do the phone number on the, tele on, the, uh, on the radio. I could never remember that either. Uh, <laughs> so as somebody who sat um, in, a, in you know, a radio station doing the phone number over and over again, not just like daily, but you know, 20 times during the course of a programme, mm. um, there were, once came a time when I had to phone into the radio station because I was mm. stuck in traffic. Do you think I could remember any number? <laughs> no, not a one. I'll tell you why you couldn't remember any number. It's because it's very rare that you read it out yourself. You normally looked at whoever <laughs> oh, was yes, that's true. sitting <laughs> alongside you and got them to do it. 
That's why. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes, I have a man who does that for me. I uh, will not be reading out numbers. Thank you very much. That's, <laughs> that's what they're for. Oh, dearie me. <laughs> Right, I've brought along with me this week a very tasty glass of Merlot. Oh! And uh, so this is to take the taste away from whatever horrible libation you are going to tempt, or at least try to tempt me with. Well, yes, I I, I would normally try and tempt you with something um, disgusting. Mm. But this week I thought I'd tempt you with a whiskey. Oh, well, uh, deal's done. Move on. Exactly. Uh, the Merlot has gone to one side, and immediately the whiskey glass has taken its place. Oh, I love a Let me introduce you, Ben, mm-hmm. to James Gilpin. Hi, James. A designer and a researcher who works on the implementation of new biomedical technologies. Well, sounds like he should make a very good whiskey then. Mm-hmm. He's also got type 1 diabetes. Okay. Where his body doesn't produce enough insulin to regulate mm. his blows. So he started a project which turns the sugar-rich urine of elderly diabetics Hold on. into high-end single malt whiskey. When you say high-end, that's obviously a lie. <laughs> <laughs> when I say high-end, I mean suitable for export. Yeah. <laughs> the source material is acquired from elderly volunteers, including Gilpin's own grandmother. The urine is purified. <laughs> Does he stand there with a bucket? <laughs> it's like a funnel. Is it a funnel? Grand. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, some sort of bucket, I'm imagining. <laughs> Can you do this on your own, or do you? Yeah. <laughs> do you need a hand? <laughs> okay, so he takes oh. the uh, urine from his from his, from his grandmother. grandmother, amongst others. <laughs> um, the, the urine is then purified in the same way as Maine's water is purified. Oh well. With the sugar molecules removed and added to the mash stock to accelerate the whiskey's fermentation process. Hmm. Uh, once fermented into a clear alcohol spirit, the whiskey blends are added to give colour, taste and viscosity, and the product is bottled with the name and the age. Of the grandma? Of grandma, yes, exactly. <laughs> Old Granny's pea. Yeah. Hold on a minute now. Um, what is the name of this whiskey? Well, it's called James... Uh, well, it, uh, mm. It's not Jameson's, is it? Oh, no. my God. <laughs> <laughs> Gilpins. 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 Okay. Um, apparently, Oof. the idea came from, a, as I understand it, unverified story that he heard about a pharmaceutical company that supposedly set up a factory next to an old people's home who would swap cushions and soft toys for the resident's urine. They'd then process the urine to remove the chemicals that had passed straight through the system of the elderly patients, which could then be put straight back into new medicine. Hold on. That's where the idea no, unverified. Wait, wait, we we just need to wait a minute. You're telling me that someone's gone to an old people's home and said, "Look, we want all the urine you can give us, and in return, here are some soft toys." Yes. And the old people's home have gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why great, not? Great deal. Why not? 
uh, and and just for the price of a cushion as well. Um, what unfortunately uh, will disappoint you is the fact that uh, Gilpin's whiskey is um, not widely marketed, isn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go around his house, you can see several bottles on the shelf. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, te- I take it I can't tempt you with one of those, then? I mean, obviously not. No. <laughs> well, you know. I'm not having it, no. No. I'm going to stick with my murder. I don't blame you. Here's the thing. Fair play to the guy for, you know, using his expertise and his imagination. And his grandmother. And his grandmother's urine to 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 produce a whiskey. I mean, is it commercially available? Um, well, uh, no, not really. Good. Right, that's good because you you have to put ingredients on. He does put it in these um, rather fancy bottles. Really? Yeah. What? For, just for the fun? Well, the, the photograph of Granny on the front. But as mm. I say, it, uh, each and every bottle. Um, uh, it comes with the uh, name and age of the contributor on it. <laughs> Here's how I imagine the photograph of Granny. She's squatting down, she's hitched up a skirt, and she's <laughs> weeing into a funnel. <laughs> and surprisingly enough, sales are low. <laughs> We couldn't get any professional marketers on board. I don't know why. <laughs> it seems such a good idea. Oh, mate. And that it's is scientifically the best proven yet, that is. it works perfectly. That's right up there with Yak's milk or whatever isn't it, the hell. Isn't I mean, it just, God almighty. Isn't it just glorious? Deary <laughs> me. Okay, well, thanks for the offer, but uh, no. Got something you want to tell us? Email thefarendofthebar at gmail.com or find us on Insta, Twitter or Facebook using the hashtag TFEOTB. In advance of what will no doubt later on be coming my way in terms of the pub quiz, I thought I'd turn the tables on you. Oh dear, here we go. change. I don't like people asking me questions. And offer you the world's shortest IQ test. Oh right, okay. Three questions, only 17% of people pass. But I have faith in you. Here's a look at the three questions. Uh, the first one, are you ready? I'm ready, I'm braced. A bat and a ball costs £1.10 in total. The bat costs £1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Ah. Uh. How long am I allowed? Well, I mean, you know, uh, I'll do the editing. You can take as long as you want, and we'll oh. just pretend it was instant if you like. I don't I'm, mind. Um, um, uh, well, I'm just writing all this down. The bat is the bat and the ball. Um, one pound ten. The bat is is one pound. How much is is one pound more than the ball? Mm-hmm. Is one pound more than the ball? Then the yeah. ball is probably worth um, probably on the shelf for ten p. It's a very good guess. And in fact, you can take solace in the fact that that is one of the answers that most people guess. Yes. But the answer actually is 5p. 5p. Yeah. So the ball costs x, then the bat costs £1 more, so it is x plus 1. So we have bat and ball, x plus 
open brackets x plus 1 close brackets equals 1.1 because together they cost £1.10. This means 2 times 1 equals 1.1 then 2 times 0.1 so x equals 0.05. So the ball costs 5p and the back costs £1.05p. If you'd given me that information in the first place, <laughs> I would have given you the correct answer, instead of which you come with some cock and ball story. <laughs> if I'd have given you that information in the first place, I would have given you the answer. <laughs> so, you know, what's the point in that? Here we are. Move along, two. question two. If it takes five... <laughs> I just feel you've missed the point of quiz questions in if you know you want me to give you the answer before the I, I, it just doesn't work i mean i'd be getting three out of three every week with your true or falses if you were giving me the answer before you gave me no, the question wouldn't. no you wouldn't i probably still wouldn't you're no, right you wouldn't. if it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets that's a very good question, and mm. the one that I feel that a lot of businessmen have been grappling with for some time. And think? can I say that um, I have no idea? No. Okay. Well, again, the most common answer is 100 minutes, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? Actually, the answer is five minutes. Do you want the explanation? Oh, I, I'm, I'm on, yes, I'm on tender hooks here. If it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets, then it takes one machine five minutes to make one widget. Because each machine is making a widget in five minutes. So if we have a hundred machines working together, then each can make a widget in five minutes. So there will be 100 widgets in five minutes. Okay. Is that, is that useful at all? I mean, it's in what way? Well, exactly. This is what I used to say in our maths class when they would say, if if you've turned two taps on to fill a bath, and the capacity of the bath, etc., 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 how long would it take if you had three taps? Mm. And you'd say, well, hang on a minute, you never get a bath with three taps. Oh, no. yes, yes, but you see, you might in the future. That might be the future of bathing, <laughs> the three-tapped bath. And you go, no. And then they start talking about two trains, one travelling from Glasgow and one travelling from Brighton. And you mm. think, I'm never going to join the railways. Why should this interest me? And I would close down. Where is uh, equidistance between uh, Glasgow and Brighton? Um, it's um, somewhere around the Belfry. Mm -hmm. Number three. Here we are, last one. It won't take long. In a, you'll get this one. I've got faith. Right. In a lake, there is a patch of lily pads... Every day the patch doubles in size. If it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, how long would it take for the patch to cover half of the lake? 24 days. Okay. That's a, I bet that's a popular answer. It's a, do you know what? It is the most popular answer. There you are. And once again, there it I is draw. incorrect. Yeah. The answer is 47 days. What? Yeah, it's obvious when you think about it or when you read it out loud from what's written down in front of you. Oh, Every day... I see. I see, because it's doubling each time. Exactly. I see. Yeah, good. So I don't need to read out the explanation for that one. You can pat yourself on the back. Well, done. Well, we all yeah. got that good. one, I think. Yeah. 
Nice. So yeah, not bad. Not out of three. No. <laughs> not out of three. Very good. Okay. Well, we'll come to the pub quiz very shortly. But in uh, in the meantime, uh, can I interest you in the Far End of the Bars series, Lives of Great Scientists? Yes. This regular series we've not had ever. Yes. We come to uh, item number 26, Sir Humphrey Davy. Welcome <laughs> to the previous 25 items. Oh, you weren't paying attention, obviously. <laughs> um, either that or they were edited out. Um, Humphrey Davy, born in Penzance, later lived in Bristol, where he became addicted to... Uh, cider. Laughing gas. OK. Good. Nitrous oxide. Is he responsible for those little metal tubes you see lying around? Well, the uh, inadvertently, I suppose he is. Um, his nitrous oxide inhalation experiments were combined with wine to judge the efficacy of nitrous oxide... As a cure for... Depression. Hangovers. Ah, same thing in many ways. <laughs> and his laboratory notebook indicates that they were a great success. However, the popularity of the gas amongst his friends and acquaintances and his copious notes about the ability of the gas to in entirely take away the sensation of pain um, are legion. And nitrous oxide became very fashionable... You were talking about the little canisters, uh, people, you know, inhaling mm. the little canisters of nitrous oxide now. Well, if you come with me to a drawing room above the laboratory of the English chemist, Humphrey Davy, at that time, he would have been throwing a wonderful soiree. A soiree? A soiree, where he offered his guests, who were poets and playwrights and doctors and scientists, mm. not a drink, but a puff from a green silk bag containing nitrous oxide laughing gas. In 1799, these parties, or experiments, as he liked to call them, being a scientist, mm -hmm. were more than just a rollicking good time. They formed part of his research and fueled his mission to better understand the brain. Um, they also led to one of the most significant medical advances of the 19th century, which was, of course... Uh, any and an you can say it. Go on. It was what? Any an anesthetic? Any any anesthetics? Yes, anesthetics, or as we know it in the um, science fraternity, anesthesia. Yeah, that's the one. That's yeah. the one. That's I the mean, bad. fair that's enough. The badger. A glass and a half of Merlot makes anesthesia very <laughs> difficult to say. <laughs> the the thing is, he wasn't responsible. Um. After a quick puff, Davy asked his friends to record their experiences. He wrote them all down in his book of research, which was published in 1800. You can still read it now. In there, I'll read some of the things that people wrote. There's a chap called Peter Mark Roger, mm -hmm. uh, who went on to publish Roger's Thesaurus. Pierre Marc Roger. There you are. Uh, and he wrote, I seem to lose the sense of my own weight. And I imagined I was sinking into the ground. Oh. Uh, in this in this little playlet, uh, Peter Mark Roger is played by Michael Caine. Yeah, <laughs> I um, was going to say <laughs> thoughts. 
thoughts rushed like a torrent through my mind, as if their very velocity had been suddenly accelerated by the bursting of a barrier, which had before retained them in their natural and equable course. Mm. I think he was having kind of a moment. And another party-goer said, uh, I felt like the sound of a harp, which I quite <laughs> liked. You know, if you're if you're off your if you're off who your, the, who is that then? We've had um, I, did, I don't know. Kane. I didn't pitch that one at anyone in particular. It was just a kind of voice that came to me at the moment. I just right. used it. I, did, well, I don't know why, but I I I had I had a little bit of Russell Brand in my head. Oh, did you? Mm. Yeah. I, I felt like no, I can't do him. No. I could do Julian Clary for you. <laughs> I felt like the sound of a harp. Was that Julian Clary? That was something. That was, that was somewhere between Julian Clary and a fair, an old trunk. Yeah, yes. Fair it, uh, uh, who was I thinking of there? Um, uh, John Hurt. John Hurt. Yes. Would you like to buy a Volvo? <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound of a harp. Poet Samuel Cole. I do a more, you know. Poet Samuel Coleridge described a state of calm ecstasy like returning from a walk in the snow, into a warm room. I mean, I do like your voice, and I always have, but I was quite disappointed to hear your own voice then, well, to yes. be honest. I was looking forward to some other pre-1990 celebrity. <laughs> <clears throat> Poet Samuel Coleridge described a state of calm ecstasy, and sounding almost like the actor James Mason, wrote... <laughs> Like returning from a walk in the snow into a warm room. <laughs> I, now, I don't know for sure, but I've got a feeling Brian Blessed might be next. <laughs> uh, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, Daly and his boss, the English physician Thomas Beddoes, who sounded incredibly like Brian Blessed, oh, amazing. were pre preoccupied <laughs> by the increasing number of factory workers Contracting lung conditions and tuberculosis. It's a big killer! <laughs> he said. And drove research into new treatments. Um, and basically they, they, they discovered that, uh, that, that nitrous oxide had this numbing effect. But they didn't make the connection. Uh, and, a, and a fella in America, a, an American dentist called Horace Wells, hmm. um, who, after noting someone had hurt themselves but felt no pain, decided to try taking nitrous oxide when he had a tooth removed. And he was right. so impressed with its numbing effect that he shared his experience with the surgeons to persuade them to try nit nitrous oxide on patients. Unfortunately, most surgery is more painful than removing a tooth. Mm. So if you have your gallbladder out, giving somebody a little touch of nitrous oxide really doesn't no. help them. Not going to do it. And he didn't get the dose right, so it was a complete disaster. But then another fellow came along, a chap called William Morton, and um, he basically said, you need ether. That's the painkiller, ether. Mm. That's the one. That really launched anaesthesia. Uh, and it took off. It was like a lightning strike, they said. But Davy never made a penny out of it, of course, because by then they moved from nitrous oxide mm. to the ether. Uh, uh, but he is the the father of nitrous oxide, and of course he is the fella who was responsible for all those little um, silver canisters mm. that scattered around the place all over the world now, with people taking them and 
making very funny noises with the music. <laughs> he started talking like that, don't we? I've I've never actually tried it myself, but I have been witness to it at Glastonbury Festival, funnily enough. Goodness me. It's it's a fairly vivid memory I have of sitting in the um, field in front of the pyramid stage uh, before the festival had even kicked off proper and two chaps, um, maybe in their 40s, early 40s I reckon, uh, were one after the other having a good hit on the old um, on the old nitrous uh, oxide and fair enough they looked like they were having a great time uh, you know a really massive fit of the giggles broad smiles uh, elation evident on their faces for about 30 seconds yes yes and then it all goes yeah. to hell and then they had to do it all over again what you need is a is a bottle of James Gilpin's Granny's Pea that's what yeah. you need that's what they should do. Have a slug of that. That'll keep you happy for more than 30 seconds. Pub quiz. Time for the pub quiz. Yeah, I've got a feeling that you might be out for revenge now, am I right? Uh, well, fact or fiction. Let's see how well you do on this thing. Here we go. <sighs> um, I'm not going to be as complicated as you were, no. because my brain doesn't work that way. The inside temperature of a cucumber. See? See the inside. This is where this is where my heart lies. The inside temperature of a cucumber is twenty degrees Fahrenheit, cooler than the air temperature on a warm summer's day. Is that fact, or is that fiction? Well, my immediate thought is, it depends very much on where the cucumber is. That's a fair, you see, you, you do have the mind of a scientist, and he'd like it back. Often been said about me. <laughs> so, uh, is that a fact or is that a fiction? Or are you just going to pick holes in my question? Ah, <laughs> uh, so it's constantly, no matter what's happening, the temperature inside a cucumber is always on a warm summer's day, twenty degrees Fahrenheit cooler than the air temperature around it. Right on a warm so on a warm summer's day. 20 degrees cooler. Fact. F- fact, okay. Um, question number two. We may laugh at the Americans for calling al- aluminium aluminum. No, I think you mean you, you've forgotten a full stop there. We may laugh at the Americans. But, and here's his, his, he's making a second appearance in today's show, but it was Sir Humphrey Davy who proposed the name aluminum. Well, as in to be pronounced aluminum? Aluminum. Oregano. Aluminum. Why would Humphrey Davy... Did I hear you right? He, you said earlier he was born in Penzance and he moved was. to Bristol. Yes. Because so, yeah, that's interesting because obviously historically there's a lot of links uh, between Penzance in America and Bristol in America. So... I'm going to say fact. 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 Okay. And finally, in the beginning days of the telephone, the standard greeting when one picked up the receiver was "Ahoy, hoy." <laughs> mm. I'm going to say that's true. I'm going for three facts. Three facts. Week. Yeah, factful. Should we go through them now? Yeah, let's do it. Um, inside temperature of a cucumber is 20 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than the air temperature on a warm summer's day. Fact. The phrase fact. cool as a cucumber has its basis in scientific fact. 
Of course it does. Whoever would have thought otherwise? We may laugh, and please do, at the Americans <laughs> for calling aluminum, aluminum, instead of aluminium. <laughs> but it was Sir Humphrey Davy proposing the name aluminum in the first place that started it all off. Mm. You said that was a fact. I reckon he was probably high on nitrous oxide one evening and thought, Let's, I've got a great idea. Let's make everyone call it aluminum. <laughs> <laughs> aluminum. Aluminum. <laughs> Back before the element was officially discovered, uh, it's a fact. And yeah. However, the name aluminium was adopted to conform because all those elements ended I-U-M, eum. Uh, most of the other elements did anyway. In 1925, the American Chemical Society decided to go back to the original aluminum, mm. aluminum. So the United States used a different name from most of the other countries. But we started it, basically. Good. We started right. off by calling it aluminum. And then they changed, we changed it to aluminium. And the Americans went back Correct. to the original name. So you're right. <laughs> and question number three, in the beginning days of the telephone, the standard greeting when one picked up the receiver was to say the words, Ahoy, hoy! Yes. I've got, I'm, I'm on for a hat-trick here. I'm pretty confident. In, uh, in the 1870s, um, Alexander Graham Bell did much development for the newly invented telephone. Bell's preferred salutation, Ahoy, hoy, was derived from the nautical term, Ahoy! Three out of three? Yeah, three out of three. What? I mean, never been known before. Unbelievable scenes away to our left-hand side, Jeff. Fantastic. That's made my day, that has. I never thought I'd see the day when I got three out of three. <laughs> what you got over there? I think it's time to buy a lottery ticket. Is it? Yeah. I'll tell you what, I'm too excited. There's nothing else for me this week. Three out of three. Let's end on that. Thank okay. you very much. Perfect. In which case, we will say, stay off Granny's pee. And until <laughs> next time... <laughs> from me and him reservoir cheerio that's time at the far end of the bar you've been listening to Richard Lewis and Ben Orr if you enjoyed your time with us please don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you catch the next episode and find us on all the socials just search hashtag TFEOTV or email us at thefarendofthebar at gmail.com cheers <laughs>